and uh, as we've been following the tradition we'll go through a summary when we meet next week but we'll complete the seventh chapter today and uh, we will take it from there as always we'll start with a short summary of what we covered last week to give us a context of what we are going to be going through today we completed verses 26 27 and 28 of the seventh chapter last week This portion Krishna speaks of how his reality is unrecognizable thanks to the maya and also he gives a hint as to how one can overcome it in fact uh, this is what is going to be elaborated in the next chapter as well here he is speaking of the theory as such there are a few practical points too but more practical points are going to be discussed in the next chapter as i understand but we'll come to that when we come to that so speaking about the people being deluded or the ones who are deluded krishna made a very beautiful statement he said vedaham samatitani vartamanani cha arjuna bhavishyani cha bhutani o arjuna i know the beings that have gone off that are present and are yet to be born mam tu vedana kaschana but no one knows me we discuss the significance of this statement one of which is not that we do not recognize god or that we do not have faith in god but we don't always recognize him as the knower of the past present and future whenever our mind becomes restless it is because we have forgotten this fact that swami knows the past present and future and as swami had told uh, an old devotee this entire universe is literally held together by his knowledge by his memory and it is the effect of maya that we think otherwise and there's also a very beautiful other episode you might have heard as part of other programs maybe especially the bhajan tutor when there was a time when swami pretended as though he had forgotten the lines of the bhajan hari bhajan bina when he would sing after his discourse and when that happened for the first time swami looks at one of the bhajan boys who was sitting in the first row and in a very subtle way indicated to him you know to prompt the next line of the bhajan and that boy did that and i think it happened for a couple of times where swami allowed this boy to think that swami had forgotten and he was there to remind swami and when he was thinking in this manner and one day swami walks up to him and very casually swami tells him did you think that i forgot the bhajan and swami says something to the effect of if i forget the entire universe will collapse the sun and the moon and all the planets would collapse right and that's the importance of this statement that krishna is making that he is the knower of the past present and future and all the beings that have come gone and are about to come in the next two shlokas krishna explains why we don't recognize or remember always that the lord is all knowing he says 
ಇಚ್ಛಾದ್ವೇಷಸಮುತ್ಥೇನ ದ್ವಂದ್ವಮೋಹೇನ ಭಾರತ ಉಸೈನ್ ಆಫ್ ಭಾರತ ಡೈನಸ್ಟಿ ಡ್ಯೂ ಟು ದ ಡೆಲ್ಯೂಷನ್ ಆಫ್ ಡ್ಯುವಾಲಿಟಿ ಅರೈಸಿಂಗ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಡಿಸ್ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಹ್ಯಾಪನ್ಸ್ ವೆನ್ ವಿ ಹ್ಯಾವ್ ಸ್ಟ್ರಾಂಗ್ ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಡಿಸ್ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ವಿ ಟೆನ್ ಟು ಗೆಟ್ ಅಟ್ಯಾಚ್ ಟು ಸರ್ಟನ್ ಔಟ್ಕಮ್ಸ್ ರೈಟ್ ಇಟ್ ಹ್ಯಾಪನ್ಸ್ ಟು ಆಲ್ ಆಫ್ ಅಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದೇರ್ ಕ್ಯಾನ್ ನೆವರ್ ಬಿ ಕಂಪ್ಲೀಟ್ ಸರೆಂಡರ್ ಇನ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಸ್ಟೇಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಅಟ್ಯಾಚ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಹ್ಯಾಡ್ ಮೇಡ್ ಇಟ್ ವೆರಿ ಕ್ಲಿಯರ್ ದ ದೋಸ್ ದಟ್ ಟೇಕ್ ರೆಫ್ಯೂಜ್ ಇನ್ ಹಿಮ್ ಆರ್ ದ ವನ್ಸ್ ಹೂ ಓವರ್ಕಮ್ ಮಾಯಾ ಸೊ ಆಸ್ ವಿ ಹವ್ ಸೀನ್ ಮಲ್ಟಿಪಲ್ ಟೈಮ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಪಾಸ್ಟ್ ಟು ಅ ಸರ್ಟನ್ ಎಕ್ಸ್ಟೆಂಟ್ ಗಿವಿಂಗ್ ಅಪ್ ಆಫ್ ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಡಿಸ್ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ಬಿಕಮ್ಸ್ ಕ್ರಿಟಿಕಲ್ ಇನ್ ದಿಸ್ ಜರ್ನಿ ಟು ರಿಯಲೈಸ್ ದ ಲಾಡ್ ಬಟ್ ಇಫ್ ಒನ್ ಇಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಏಬಲ್ ಟು ಡೂ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ದೀಸ್ ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಡಿಸ್ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ಮೇಕ್ ಒನ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಬೋರ್ನ್ ವಿತ್ ಅ ಸ್ಪೆಸಿಫಿಕ್ ನೇಚರ್ ಅಗೇನ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಅಗೇನ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಸೆಡ್ ಸರ್ವಭೂತಾನಿ ಸಮ್ಮೋಹಂ ಸರ್ಗೇಯಾಂತಿ ಆಲ್ ಕ್ರೀಚರ್ಸ್ ಬೀಯಿಂಗ್ ಬಿವಿಲ್ಡರ್ಡ್ ಆಟ್ ದ ಟೈಮ್ ಆಫ್ ದೇ ಬರ್ತ್ ಇನ್ ದಿಸ್ ಬಿವಿಲ್ಡಮೆಂಟ್ ಇಸ್ ವಾಟ್ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಇಸ್ ರೆಫರಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಆಸ್ ದಿ ನೇಚರ್ ದಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಬೋರ್ನ್ ವಿತ್ ಅಸ್ ಬಿಕಾಸ್ ಆಫ್ ದಿ ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಡಿಸ್ಲೈಕ್ಸ್ ದಟ್ ವಿ ಹೆಡ್ ಫಾಸ್ಟರ್ಡ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಪ್ರೀವಿಯಸ್ ಲೈಫ್ ಟೈಮ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದಿಸ್ ವಾಸ್ ಅಗೇನ್ ಸಮಥಿಂಗ್ ದಟ್ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಸ್ಪೋಕ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಎಟ್ ಲೆಂತ್ ಇನ್ ದಿ ತರ್ಡ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಫೋರ್ತ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಫಿಫ್ತ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ಇನ್ ದಿ ಟ್ವೆಂಟಿ ಏತ್ ವರ್ಸ್ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಸೇಸ್ ದಟ್ one whose sins have gradually reduced and have come to an end and have become free from the grip of likes and dislikes worships me with steadiness bhajante mam dravarta what krishna is saying here is very significant for all of us devotion and surrender to swami is closely tied to our likes and dislikes or to be more precise to how obsessed we are with our likes and dislikes the other point that krishna has been making is of course that of good actions that is almost like a given when the ultimate state is to see your own self in all then it is quite understandable how can the path to reach there be one where one is allowed to harm or cheat others right the path also should be where one is able to practice that oneness isn't it and that is why this point about good actions and good deeds is always an undercurrent as we have discussed even when we are talking about karma yoga even though krishna doesn't mention about good karma as dharmic or moral karma it is given there is no karma yoga without perfecting karma or doing good karma and that's something that krishna repeats here but coming back to this point love for god makes surrender far more accessible there are two things that krishna is saying here that the more you give up your likes and dislikes you will have more focus on the lord bhajante mam dridavrataha one becomes a person of steadiness and then worships the lord the corollary of that also holds good the more we tend to love god the more we develop love and devotion to god then the grip of likes and dislikes automatically start losing their effect on us and no one can teach this better to us than swami and i'm sure he has done this to each one of us in his own way so i thought i will share two incidents in this regard one is a very simple and sweet incident where swami was teaching this lesson through a very loving episode and the other is an incident that shows the maturity of a devotee who has this kind of surrender and can face 
troubles with fortitude. So these are the things that uh, I, I thought I'll start with before we go to the next two shlokas or the final two shlokas of this chapter. The first episode I just heard a couple of days back and uh, narrated by one of the old students. I think sometimes Swami just sends us the right anecdote so that we are able to share and enjoy and it is always a, a better feeling or a better learning process if you are able to share an anecdote in the backdrop of the message, right? And that's the opportunity I felt when I heard this anecdote and I thought I should share it in the context that we are discussing. As I said, it was shared by one of Swami's students and I think at that point, the student was studying in Swami's school. It was a Sunday and uh, on Sundays, the students would come for morning darshan. Those of you are aware of the practice of this, those days. And generally in a hostel, because it's morning darshan day, we had to come to mandir by 6, 6.30. So breakfast would be made ready very early. So we would go for suprabhatam and by the time we finish suprabhatam and come to our rooms, the breakfast would be ready by 5.30. And if breakfast has to be made so early in the morning, invariably the Sunday breakfast would be very simple, something that can be made quickly for 300, 400 boys. So invariably, our Sunday breakfast would be something like upma, right? So that particular day, the breakfast in the hostel was upma and bread. And a few of the boys who didn't like the breakfast had skipped it at that point and they had come away to mandir, something that we would often do for two reasons. One is the breakfast is not too enticing and what is waiting in mandir is far more enticing that you don't mind skipping that breakfast. And so a lot of us would do that. We would skip our Sunday breakfast and only come back and have whatever is remaining. So these boys had gone to Mandir. Swami comes that morning. He finishes his round of darshan. He has picked up a few devotees for interviews. And then Swami comes in front of this group of uh, students who were sitting there. And then Swami started asking, so what was the breakfast in hostel today? Something that Swami would often do. We've seen Swami do that even with the primary school children. So the boys had a long phase and they said, Swami, upma today. And in the tone and in the look on their faces, Swami could see that uh, that was not a breakfast which was very welcome. So Swami looked at one of the boys, the boy who had narrated this episode, and asked him, so did you have breakfast? This boy had skipped breakfast, so he did not want to tell Swami that he didn't have, nor did he want to tell a lie to Swami that he did. So he just kept quiet. And Swami smiled at him and then Swami went away into the interview room. Just a few seconds later, Swami opens the door and Swami peeps out of the door, right? So Swami is inside the interview room, but Swami's torso is outside. So Swami is peeping out and looking at this particular boy and gestures and calls him. So this boy goes up to the door. Now Swami has gone in, so this boy peeps in. So he is outside the interview room and his torso is inside. And even as he peeps in, Swami quietly slips a hundred rupee note into his pocket and tells him, go to the canteen and have some breakfast and come. And then Swami says, take all those those two or three other boys who are with you also. All of you go have breakfast and come. A very sweet gesture, right? Uh, very sweetly, Swami wanted to show those boys that he cared for them. So these boys got very excited. They ran to the canteen and very hesitantly, they gave away this money that Swami had given them because they had to buy the coupons. They did not have any other money with them. And all of us would love to have cherished that 100 rupee note than give it away to the coupon counter, the person at the coupon counter. 
but they didn't have a choice. So very hesitantly, they give the 100 rupees. They buy those few coupons. And they go into the canteen and they ask the Sevadal, sir, what do you have for breakfast? And what does the Sevadal say? You have Upma here. <laughs> and these boys look at each other and they ask the person again, sir, is there any other item other than Upma? And they tell him, Sairam, nothing else is there. Only Upma is there. If you want, you can have. So these boys smile at each other, quietly sit there, eat the upma which is served and then they go back to Mandir. As soon as the interviews get over, Swami comes out, comes to this particular boy to whom Swami had given that money and Swami says, So what did you have, sir? Swami asks him and this boy says, Swami, we had upma. And Swami had a very happy chuckle and Swami very gleefully says, See, this is why I say you must accept whatever I give. And remember this, whatever you get is always Swami's prasadam. A, such a simple incident, you know, and what a, what a sweet and simple way of teaching such a profound message. I can't tell you how beautiful it is and, you know, for somebody who has been in that position, will this message ever be lost in time? It would be one of the most cherished memories here. Obviously, it's one of the cherished memories because 30 years or 40 years later, that student recalls the same incident with the same fondness, right? The same upma which they disliked became so special when it was given by Swami. And the lesson was much, much more precious that Swami gave through this episode. The love that these children had for Swami made that upma special that day, isn't it? The upma is the same. And to be honest, let me tell you, our hostel upma is definitely better than the canteen upma. With due respect to all the cooks in the canteen, our hostel upma is not all that bad. But imagine the idea of having upma, which was not very uh, likable to the students. That same upma became prasadam, became so special because of Swami's touch. In the same way, when we have love for God, it becomes so much more easier to be free from the grips of our likes and dislikes, right? It's not that we will not have likes and dislikes at all, but we will not be so attached to them, right? We don't like something, it still comes, we will take it as Swami's prasadam, right? And this will help both ways. You have love for Swami, the grip of likes and dislikes will reduce. The more the grip of likes and dislikes on you reduce, the more easily we will be able to focus on Swami. So that's one of the episodes that I wanted to share with all of you. Such a sweet episode, right? Swami can teach the essence of Bhagavad Gita even through Upma. And that's the preciousness of living with the Supreme Master. The other episode I wanted to share is an episode from the life of Professor Kasturi. And I'm sure most of you would have heard it on the radio. Even I've mentioned it in a couple of talks before. We all know how physically close to Swami Professor Kasturi was. He had this opportunity to be uh, Swami's translator, the editor of Sanatan Sarathi, the person who travelled with Swami extensively for so many decades, right? So he was very close to Swami physically. He had access to Swami. But his personal life had its fair share of troubles, or I should say more than a fair share of troubles and disasters. His daughter had many marital problems. His wife was sick and bedridden for many, many years. He had his own health problems. But he would never speak 
about any of these to Swami. He would never go to Swami and say, Swami, I have this trouble, solve this problem. One day he was coming back after giving a lecture to overseas devotees in the ashram. And uh, that day when he was coming back to his home, his daughter completely lost it. His daughter whom we fondly refer to as Padma Kasturi auntie who is still in the ashram. She completely lost it at that moment and she started fighting with uh, Professor Kasturi, her father. She said, what is this? You know, you go and talk for hours and hours on Swami and how Swami helped this person and how Swami saved that person. But what has he done for you? Your wife is sick. For 11 years, she's been lying on that bed. Look at me, your daughter. I have, my life is filled with marital problems. What has this Baba done for you and why do you go around speaking in all glorious terms about him? Professor Kasturi listened very calmly. He did not get upset with this outburst of his daughter. And uh, in a very wise tone, he told, he said, it is okay for you to talk like this. Because after all, you're troubled, you're emotionally uh, going through a lot of trouble. So it is alright for you to talk this way. But when it comes to me, I don't want Swami to do anything for me or for my family. Because I know that whatever He does is perfect. He is God and whatever He does to me is perfect. I have that faith in Him. And whomever He does it to, whomever He saves, whomever He comes and fosters and protects, I consider them as my own. I do not have any attachment with you, with my wife or my family. Yes, from your point of view, what you're saying is absolutely right. But I do not have the feeling that this is my family and only when Swami does something to this family, He is doing it to me. Whatever He does for me, whatever He does to me, be it pain or pleasure, it is acceptable to me because He is perfect and what He gives me is perfect. In my humble understanding, this kind of surrender only comes with pure love for God and not through any intellectual understanding. Only a devotee who is madly in love with God can look at God and say, whatever comes from you is acceptable to me. Like Nida, for her it made no difference if it was poison in the cup or it was milk. Because whatever she consumed, she consumed it as Krishna's prasadam. This attitude will not come with intellectual understanding. At least that's how I look at it. If it comes through intellectual understanding, I can say that it comes so much more easily with love for God. So these three, goodness, a duty-centered life that enables one to overcome the push and pull of Raga and Dvesha and love for God. In my opinion, these are closely connected and it can be seen from what Krishna is saying in this chapter, right? These three things are connected to each other. One leads to the other, one strengthens the other. If this is not happening, then there is some flaw in our approach. If we say, I have a lot of love for Swami, but you know, I can't be a good person. If you say that I am very, very devoted to Swami, but you know, I can't do my duties properly. Then there's something wrong in the way we are approaching this, right? Our love for God should be able to make us more good, make us more righteous. Similarly, the more righteous we are, it will enable us to have more focus and more love for God. And these two will also lead us to have lesser and lesser attachment to our likes and dislikes. And the lesser attachment to likes and dislikes means 
a more equanimous state of mind right that's why all these three are related so we'll go to the next verse the 29th verse the penultimate verse of the 7th chapter we'll listen to it in the voice of brother sham who has been kind enough to do all the recitations for us i will give you a brief meaning of the shloka after that and then we'll discuss in detail what krishna is saying there jara marana mokshaya mamashritya yatantiye ते ंग He says, "All have the desire to overcome old age and death, jara and marana." This could also be interpreted as decay and death, or decay and impermanence, or simply impermanence itself. Shouldn't a spiritual person grow out of the desire to remain young? Shouldn't a spiritual person grow out of the fear of death? just now we said that we should not be fixated to likes and dislikes having said that if i like youth more than old age if i like to be young and appear young more than appear old or if i prefer life over death how can that be acceptable this seems to be a bit contrary to what krishna just said about raga and dvesha likes and dislikes icha dvesha as the two words that he used in this chapter I think it is this way. Swami would often say that this desire for immortality, the desire for happiness that is eternal, is something that is very deep rooted. It's a deep seated aspiration in the human mind. Swami had said this in a discourse. I couldn't get the exact words of Swami, but I've heard it in one of the discourses. Swami says, "Man is essentially immortal." right the truth the true self is actually immortal but because of the body consciousness that we all have we end up thinking that the body is the self and we end up striving for the immortality of the body and that is why when we fall sick we do whatever it takes to extend life in this body it is because inherently we know that we are immortal the only mistake is we are associating the self with the body rather than the self with that which is already immortal so when swami speaks of an aspiration to overcome decay and death this is a fundamental craving that is within each one of us and in a spiritual person death and decay is overcome in a different way one does not give up the desire to overcome death and decay but one overcomes that or one makes an effort to overcome that in a different way and what is that he or she doesn't remain young and deathless but one stops identifying with the body that is subject to death and decay and one starts identifying with the soul that is never born never dies ajam avyayam as krishna had said earlier so krishna speaks about 
this striving. But how does one go about this striving? That's what Krishna speaks in this particular shloka. Krishna says, Jara Marana Mokshaya for liberation from old age and death, Mam Ashritya, having taken refuge in me, Yatanti Ye, those who strive. We'll come to the next line in a short while. But we will just dwell a little more on this line that, on the statement that Krishna is making. This is actually a half statement, but what is Krishna saying here? Many times in this portion of the Gita, Krishna has spoken of the person who has taken refuge in him, right? He had said, you can overcome Maya by taking refuge in me. You reach me when you take refuge in me. So what is this taking refuge in God? Maam Ashritya, having taken refuge in me. Practically speaking, what does that really mean? If I come to you and tell you the only thing that you have to do is take refuge in God, you will ask me how, right? There needs to be a practical way of doing that. How do I take refuge in Swami? And the important point is, he says, Maam Ashritya Yatanti Ye Those who strive having taken refuge in me. Which means, Krishna is not speaking of taking refuge as the final state. He is speaking of striving or an effort after taking refuge. And I think this is something very important for us to contemplate on. He says, Maam Ashritya Yatanti Ye After having taken refuge in me, those who strive. Given that, what is this taking refuge in the Lord? If you are someone who follows political news, if you are up to date with the happenings around, you would remember that sometime back there was this hue and cry about a particular agency, an internet-based agency, that in a very definitive sense influenced the American elections using the data collected from social networking platforms. Right? I'm sure uh, if you're following the news, you'll know what I'm referring to. Nowadays, we carry out so much of our activities online, you know, be it reading news, sharing our vacation details, what we cook, what we like, what we are eating for dinner, our political views, our religious leanings, what we are scared about. Typically, all our ragas and dveshas, all our likes and dislikes, we now go and dump it on the internet. Sometimes in a very conscious sense, sometimes very, very unconsciously, right? Typically, using social media the way it is meant to be used means that you are putting out your likes and dislikes for the world to see. So, using all this data, today there are very advanced algorithms that can build a very accurate character sketch of who you are. Take any issue. Let's say I'm a person who has this feeling that maybe the present government in my country is a bit corrupt. And I've, say, posted a few messages online expressing my thoughts or there is a news and I've commented under it saying that, oh, it looks like this government is corrupt or I don't know why this government has done this. So I've put out this idea that I'm a person who has this inclination that my government is corrupt. When the elections are about to come, right, and when the government that is trying to come to power wants to influence my thinking, they will see me as a person who is sitting on the fence and if the right kind of inputs are given to this person, he will not doubt that the government is corrupt, but he will be convinced that the government is corrupt. 
So what will happen to me is I will start seeing more and more ads and news that slowly strengthen this idea that my government is corrupt. So eventually I'll be convinced and by the time I go out to vote, I will be absolutely sure that my government is corrupt and I will vote against the government. Initially, when we see as a society, we started moving towards a democratic setup. The primary reason being that we thought when all people come together and choose the government, we are likely to have a fair rule as against a group of people who make that decision for us and a group of people are very easy to manipulate and that can lead to all kinds of problems. So you can corrupt a handful of people, but you cannot influence a society that has a few hundred thousand people. So that way, a democracy seemed a better idea for us. But today, that is exactly what is being done. My thinking is being dictated by some external agency. My choices are being manipulated by the information that I am being fed by external agencies. But when I go and cast my vote, I am under the illusion that I have a choice and I am voting according to my choice. But the truth is, my choice has already been taken away from me and without my knowledge, by influencing my thinking, I am being made to act in a certain way, isn't it? And this is not a fanciful story or a conspiracy theory I'm talking about. This is actually proven and this has been admitted by some of the companies who are ready to offer this kind of service, right? And people are still not sure whether this is legitimate or there's something fuzzy about this and that's the crazy thing. Well, this is an extreme example of how social media is misused to influence our thinking. But in a more general sense, you know, when uh, an extreme example is given, it kind of gives us the extreme idea of what is happening with us. But this is something that is happening to us every day without our knowledge. And our mind is such that anything that is negative very easily makes a deeper impact in it. So when we read about, say, communal hatred or racism or anti-racism, our mind accepts these ideas very quickly and very deeply. When we go out into the society, these then play a part in the way we interact with people. We see people of a certain color, we see people of a certain you know, background, and automatically we think, oh, these people are like this, right? In our mind, we are thinking, I have my free will to think the way I want. But the truth is, my thinking has already been influenced by this input that is coming from around me. So in a sense, the society is choosing and acting through each one of us. And people who have kind of understood the way this thing works and who have selfish motives manipulate this, right? And it is through this influence that comes from outside, we make friends, we make financial decisions, we take inputs and make uh, planning for our future. We even make romantic decisions influenced by these inputs. Why am I talking about all of this? We'll come back to our point. When we say we must take refuge in God and then strive, I feel it is this. Can we turn this mind towards God whereby He becomes the master and influencer of all our thoughts rather than the world being the influencer of our thoughts? 
the world is constantly feeding me with the idea that i have to look out for myself it is okay to be selfish i need to fend my own interests swami comes along and says you be good you do your duty without worrying about the results everything else will be fine i'll take care of it so whose words are we going to allow to influence our life that is why swami would say freedom of choice is actually an illusion that's one of the greatest illusions that we are all living in the society is constantly taking that choice away from us so your thinking is already surrendered to the influence of the society can we change that and surrender ourselves to the influence of the lord so ashraya or surrender is not merely when we are in trouble telling oh swami you have to take care of me or my only refuge or calling out to god at a time of emergency that is not ashraya that is not surrender taking refuge in god means basing my choices my decisions and my aspirations on god and then saying swami now i've done i've made choices i've acted based on what i've learned from you now i leave it to you you give me what you will what we do is only half the task i choose what i want to do i strive with my own understandings i use my resources towards that choice that i've made i struggle i fight and finally at the time when the results come i turn to swami and say swami please help me get what i want or i turn to god and say swami it is up to you this only makes me an artha artharthi or jignasu as the case may be because i have made my choice myself i have done my striving myself but what i must do is what does swami like will swami approve of this action will swami want me to live like that these questions have to be answered at every step of the journey a person who constantly strives like that krishna describes as mam ashritya yantiye he who strives having taken refuge in me at least that is what makes sense to me when i am going through this portion of the gita so this is another beautiful and practical definition for surrender when we say surrender to god what am i supposed to do practically last week we had spoken of surrender as moving from merely trusting in god's omnipotence to believing in god's omniscience not only feeling that god knows god can deal with all my problems but also coming to the understanding that god knows best if this problem has to be dealt with he's going to deal with it otherwise so be it so moving from god's omnipotence or trusting in god's omnipotence to trusting in god's omniscience is one of the definitions of surrender that we came across another definition is you don't wait till the last stage to bring god into the picture he must be brought in at the time of doing the action itself or rather even before that when we are making up our mind to do an act and this is achieved through the threefold practice of shravana manana and nididhyasana how do the words of people the news that we hear the media that we watch how does that influence us we take it in we contemplate on it and without our knowledge it becomes a part of our thinking the same way but more consciously we must do it with the words of the scriptures and the words of the guru in our case words of swami listen 
contemplate and make it a part of our thinking. In social media terms, one of the terms that is often used is a social media influencer. He or she is a person who has the following of uh, so many thousands or so many millions and that person can influence people's thinking with regards to certain topics of current affairs or primarily fashion. When we say we are surrendering to Swami, we should be able to knock out all influencers and make Swami our sole influencer in our life. If we do that and strive for Jara Marana Mokshaya, the moment you make Swami the influencer of your life, you cannot be a worldly person, isn't it? You cannot have worldly goals. You should have spiritual goals. That's why when you take refuge in Him, you will become a person who strives for Jara Marana Mukshaya, for liberation from old age and death. Completing that shloka, Krishna says, when we strive like that, Krishna says in the next line, Te Brahma Tat Viduhu they recognize that Brahman, Kritsnam, holy, Cha and Adhyatmam, knowledge of the self, Karma Akhilam, all Karma. Which means, this striving that Krishna spoke about in the previous line leads to complete knowledge, knowledge of Brahman, knowledge of one's own self, Adhyatma and knowledge of all Karma. Karma Akhilam. When we say Karma Akhilam, it means who is the doer, what is doership, what is karma that binds, what is karma that frees. All of that knowledge is understood. So this is a very this is very much the ultimate path that Krishna is speaking about. Krishna is saying that you can find all answers through this process of taking refuge in God, as we just discussed. Or we can see the statement also as, as presented by some of the scholars. Te Brahma Tat Viduhu Kritsnam. They recognize that Brahman entirely, Adhyatmam as the self, Cha Karma Akhilam, and as all actions, meaning Brahman alone is. This is the refrain of the next shloka too. So, what this suggests is also the same idea. In the next verse, the final verse of this chapter, Krishna uses a few terms, and those terms will become the leads for the next chapter. We listen to the next verse. In a sense, the next verse, the few words that Krishna speaks there should be seen in connection with what Krishna is saying here. We will do that also. But first, we listen to the last shloka, the 30th shloka of the 7th chapter. I'll give you a brief meaning after that and then we'll discuss in detail what Krishna says. Sadhi bhuta di daivam maam Sadhi yagnyancha ye viduhu Prayana kale pichamam Te vidur yukta chetasaha Those who know me with the adibhuta pertaining to the elements Adidhaiva pertaining to the gods and Adhi yagnya pertaining to the sacrifice, know me even at the time of death, steadfast in mind. So that is the 30th and the final verse of the 7th chapter. Krishna has made this statement many times already. Those who know me, reach me. 
in multiple forms this declaration has come and it is not the last time we will come across this statement either because this is the final goal as the classic vedantic statement says brahmavid brahmaiva bhavati when we recognize brahman we will recognize brahman as our true identity and we will recognize brahman as the true identity of all beings that's what krishna says here ye viduhu those who know sadhi bhuta adhidaivam mam sadhi yagnyam cha as centered on the physical world and as centered on the devatas and as centered on the yagnyas so these are those three terms that krishna uses adhibhuta adhidaivam and adhiyagnya as i said these three words lead to the next chapter in fact arjuna is going to ask about these terms in the very first verse of the next chapter so as we used to do in our school and college days when a topic comes in the next semester we will not bother reading about it in this semester so we're going to do it exactly that we will keep it for the next chapter we will come to that in a couple of weeks and we will deal with that then but i'll just give you a brief idea about those statements i've given you a brief uh, meaning already as i was saying just before i played that shloka these three terms are to be considered along with what was said in the previous verse krishna said they recognize the brahman as adhyatmam karmacha akhilam right so the jnani is one who knows brahman as being the self all karma all physical entities all divine beings and as the source of all yagnyas it is in a way a very exhaustive way of saying to recognize brahman in everything because krishna is covering a lot of these we will not go into the details completely as i said it is going to come again but in a way when krishna says adhidaivam it's a reference to the many deities right and we have seen what is the idea about the various deities that krishna gives when krishna says adhyatmam it means the self when krishna says adibhutam the essence of all beings that means a certain sense so it's a very exhaustive and also when krishna makes a reference to the yagnas it is very similar to the brahmarpanam shloka that we came across he is the one who is making the offering he is the ahuti he is the fire he is the one who is going to receive the offering and he is the one who is going to bless and the one who is blessed becomes brahman right it's everything covered in that otherwise this statement makes very little sense sadi bhutaadi daivam maam sadi yagnyam cha how can something have three centers the meaning of that is centered around the uh, bhutams and daivams and the yagnyams something can have only one center right how can something have three centers simultaneously this is only to suggest that the brahman is everything right it is all encompassing and that's the idea that krishna is conveying we have seen this possible doubt throughout this chapter when the lord is everything especially when we say that the lord exists in every aspect of prakriti the world as we see it why can't we pursue the world well the simple answer is we are at this point trying to use the data that everything is god to justify our worldly pursuits right 
I'm already pursuing the world. I'm probably reading this chapter or reading a few shlokas of this chapter and saying that, oh, Krishna has said that he is everything. Everything in Prakriti is him. So can I continue to pursue the world? Right? We are trying to justify our worldly pursuits using this as data. But the reality is, when we truly recognize God as Brahman, nothing can be unacceptable to us. The mind will not see anything as being more desirable because we will recognize that God is everything. The center of everything that we come across is the same divine. You know, when we were kids, there used to be these small biscuits, tiny little uh, cookies or biscuits or sometimes sugar candies that would come in different shapes the shapes of different animals or in the shape of different vehicles or musical instruments. And if you recall, when we were kids, we would uh, make a big fuss about which shape we get. We would fight, we would trade amongst ourselves and you know, we would uh, pride ourselves that we have got different shapes and all that kind of silly things we would do. Now, having grown up, if you were to offer me those same biscuits and same sugar candies, do you think you or me will fight about a particular shape or figure? I think we would have, at least I would believe that we are mature enough to understand that it's after all the same candy, the same sweet, the same taste. The shapes may be different, but they're going to be different only as long as I put that candy in my mouth. We all have reached that maturity, isn't it? Same is the case with what we refer to as God-realization or understanding the ultimate truth. With that truth will come the understanding that no one thing or one entity is more special to me than the other. And this is the point that Krishna is repeating in different ways all through this chapter and the many chapters of the Gita. And he concludes the chapter by saying, Prayana Kale Apicha And even at the time of death, Maam Te Viduhu They know me, Yukta Chetasaha Steadfast in mind. These men who are steadfast know me even at the time of death. Sometimes I think, why such a big fuss is being made of what happens at the time of death? Is it really so difficult to think of God at the time of death? I mean, we think of Swami so many times during the day and uh, you know, we have attended so many bhajans, we have had so many darshans. Is it going to be so difficult to think of Swami at the last moment? Well, the truth is, apparently it is. As I told you sometime back, this evening we are going to do satsang on the uh, Veda Purusha Saptah Jnana Yagnya and we are going to be speaking about one Swami Amrita Nanda, a great yogi who came to Swami in the late 50s. He was a sannyasi for close to 50 years by the time he came to Swami. And when he had the opportunity to ask Swami for something, when he was convinced that Swami was a divine incarnation, what did he ask? He prayed to Swami that Swami in my last moments, I should think of you. You should come and give me your darshan. Because it is such a big deal. You could be a sannyasi for 50-60 years, but there is no guarantee in that last moment you'll think of God. And many devotees have sought this boon from Swami. And Krishna himself is going to speak about the blessing of remembering the Lord in those last minutes of life. In the previous shloka, Krishna spoke about death and old age, jara marana. The reason is, it is not easy to occupy the mind with other things when our bones and joints are creaking, when our organs are giving up, especially in the last moments when the body is being discarded. 
most of us do this mistake we all think that spirituality is for old age you know we'll keep all bhajans and japam for after retirement at that moment it seems like a sensible thing to do from the worldly point of view because that time we are free after our retirement we have no commitments our mind is also free we will be able to give a lot of time to all this and right now i am so busy you know i have to take care of my family i have my corporate job and all of that but what happens is something completely different from what we hope to achieve as we have discussed earlier also on the series when there is a pain in the body it is a mechanism the body uses to catch our attention when i have a cut in my finger it hurts badly and till i address it the pain will not stop and why so because left unattended that particular uh, scar or opening can cause more problems so pain is nature's mechanism to draw our attention similarly as we grow old the stomach will refuse to take certain kinds of food as we grow up the limbs will seek our indulgence because now we have gone past our peak and our body needs that attention we fill our mind with thoughts of the world when we are young that is the time when the mind is actually free because the body is invariably in its peak it can take care of itself it can digest anything that it eats it needs very little attention so when we have enormous mind space when we are young we fill it with worldly thoughts and pursuits as we grow yes we might have lesser worldly pursuits probably but the mind now gets occupied by the needs of the body now when the mind is occupied with these thoughts it cannot be ignored because they are meant to be dealt with and this stage body consciousness only deepens and it is all the more impossible at the time of death to think of god as i said this theme is going to come back again in the gita and most likely i will be repeating these very points again too but we will discuss that when krishna speaks about that coming back to this shloka so krishna says you will recognize me as being present in all and you will know this even at the time of death which means this knowledge will not remain superficial it will become a part of my nature till the moment death comes if you look at our body some functions in the body go on without a break you don't have to remember to digest your food or breathe because these have become functions or natural to your existence a lot of memories fade away but some body functions do not fade away they go on till the last moment because they have become part of our system in the same way this idea that god is everywhere in everything in every person i meet is no more an information that i have to remember it becomes a thought that has become my own nature that has become my truth and that is why krishna says prayana kale api cha mam te vidur yukta chetasah prayana kale actually means the time of leaving the time of going on a journey when the soul leaves the body behind if there are any traces of body consciousness the mind will be thinking only of the body but when the maya has been overcome then the body is let go of effortlessly as we recite in the trayambaka mantram urva rukamiva bandhanan like the cucumber why is that example given apparently when the cucumber is ripe you don't have to pluck it from the creeper it naturally detaches from the stalk and it falls down similarly when the aspirant is transcended raga and dvesha 
and there has been no desire but desire for the Lord, one just lets go of the world effortlessly. And that happens because of this knowledge that the Lord is Sadi Bhutadi Daivam Sadi Yagnam. Understandably, these are all concepts that keep being repeated in different, different ways again and again. Krishna is saying the same thing. Oh, Krishna, you already told this. Why are you repeating this over and over again? This one point that God is imminent in everyone, we are supposed to see the Lord as the resident of all, is being repeated so many times just in this chapter and I don't have to say in the other portions of the Gita. Why so? This is the process of Shravana, Manana and Nididhyasana. This is the only way to remove untruth from the mind. We have to literally marinate the mind in truth. Going back to what I said about Ashraya, we all are under the illusion that we have the freedom to act, the freedom to make our own choices. That is the greatest illusion. The world is choosing and acting through us. Even the scriptures are actually trying to do exactly that. They are trying to influence our thinking. There's no doubt about that. But the scriptures are trying to influence us in the right direction. And it is influencing and edging us towards freedom, what we refer to as moksha. Only when we recognize the oneness with the divine, we can truly be free. Only with that knowledge comes freedom. Never otherwise. You could have the freedom to do anything that you want in the world, but you're not free. That is why Swami makes this very profound statement. He says, end of wisdom is freedom. Only in the culmination of that wisdom, there is freedom. Only when we become Swami, only when we become that Brahman, only when we recognize our unity with that Brahman, we can truly be free. And for that, we must allow ourselves to be influenced more and more and more by Swami's words by these Vedantic truths and that's why they will be repeated again and again till we might get bored but we should be thankful because this is the only way the untruth can be washed away from the mind. With that dear listeners we complete the seventh chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. I most humbly offer this effort of this week and this entire chapter at Swami's Lotus Feet. Thank you for joining me this week. Do join me again next week. We'll meet and we will go through the summary of the seventh chapter when we meet next time. Till I meet you all next time. Take care. Keep safe. Jai Sairam.